Well, it's uh, great to be with you here again today. It is a privilege to uh, be able to come and to share in these worship times. Uh, We're in a series that I'm really enjoying, this look through the book of Mark at the journey of Jesus. And uh, that's an important one. And just as a way of backdrop, you know, it's pretty typical for every coach, uh, a good coach at least, to come into a game with a game plan. That is a strategy, understanding their uh, opponent's strengths and weaknesses and their own uh, team's abilities to try to decide how can they pull this off to the best effect. To up it a bit, we also know that every good general has a strategy for their war. And they don't even want to go into a single battle without knowing what the whole strategy is and where this is supposed to lead. Now some generals, the best they can hope for is a defensive posture. They're just hoping they don't lose what they have. The best takeaway they can get is to try to hold on. But there are other generals, game-changing generals, that have a strategy because they want to win. They actually want to have the outcome of their efforts totally and radically change people's reality and experience. And so they fight with that kind of motivation, that kind of insight. Well, I'm here to tell you that God has always had a plan. And he has a plan to war against Satan for his beloved creation. From the foundations of the world... God loved his creation, planned for his creation, provided for his creation. And when things were lost at the uh, fall in the garden with Adam and Eve, and relationships were ripped apart between God's uh, beloved creatures, man and himself, right there at the beginning, he said, let me just tell you something, Satan. Genesis 3.15, God said that Satan would, that God would use the offspring of a woman to crush his head. So right from the beginning, we see that God has a plan. As we got into uh, this book of Mark last week, we see that uh, that plan starts being revealed through this uh, study and through this historic account. The first verse says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark says, here's how it began. And it's about the good news, the gospel which is wrapped up in this person, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, the sent one, the anointed one, the one who would be the king on the throne of David, the one who would be king forever, that one who also happens to be the very Son of God. That's sort of the uh, unfolding of this. And as we saw in the uh, baptism account, God was present in the Trinity at the baptism. God the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit was there like a dove moving and showing his connectedness to Jesus. And Jesus was there as the Son of God, Mark wrote about, but as a man, as one of us. And so the heart of God's strategy is revealed right there in verse 1. And that was that God was not going to leave his creation alone. He was going to come and be with us. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus in the flesh, entering right into the fray. And that's a piece of his strategy which is actually central. And we'll continue to see this as we go all the way to our journey to the cross. This week we're going to look at some passages starting in verse 14 that gets into another another level of God's strategy. Another plan for him in this war to restore his creation. And you need to pay attention because this plan includes you and God's plans for you. Let's start with verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. 
So, how does this start? The first thing that Mark records that is spoken by Jesus as he, at the very beginning of his public ministry, that's where we are. And the first thing you have to note is, oh, by the way, there's trouble already. You thought this was going to be smooth and easy? Remember that guy, John the Baptist, who was the one sent by God, prophesied by Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before he was even born, miraculously born to his aged parents, set apart his whole life to proclaim not just that he was the man, in fact, that he wasn't the man, but he's preparing the way for Christ. So John did everything God asked of him. And he was totally faithful to that. And Jesus could give high remarks of praise for the man Mark, for the man John. But you know what? When this account starts, John has been arrested. The plan of God and the battle for the restoration of the kingdom starts in that sense with trouble. And it should just give us a sense of how things are going to work. As we know, those of us who know the rest of the story, things didn't work out so well for John in prison. His life came to a sad end. And yet we're going to find that God was in all of that. So Jesus starts after the arrest. He leaves the Judean area, goes back up to Galilee where he was from. And he starts proclaiming this message of the good news. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, what is the good news? I mean, really, what is it, this gospel, this word that we call the good news? What's the big deal about the good news? Well, it turns out the good news is not good advice. We're using a book by Tim Keller for part of our study here, and he reflects in his book called King's Cross, which, by the way, we have in our bookstore if you'd like to get a copy. And he reflects in there that most religion, I'd have to say all religion apart from Christianity, is basically a package of advice. Here's how to try to appease God and please God and earn points with God and put yourself in a situation so you won't be judged by God. It's good advice, things to do, righteousness to work on. But that's not good news. Good news is, hey, something has happened and you're not the author of it. But you may well be the beneficiary of this really, really good news. Not advice. We might think that the word gospel was used exclusively about the story of Christ's life, but actually it had been used in that culture at the same time. The Greeks used it and others used it to simply mean some like game-changing big news. Something really important has happened. The Greeks, for instance, were attacked by the Persians. And the Persians invaded their land, and they lived mostly in these city-states, and so they didn't muster themselves into a whole army, but there was an army fighting for them, and most of them were in, 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 uh, in their cities waiting to hear the news. Have we become the Persians' slaves? Are they going to come and take our land and take whatever people they want and our children into slavery and take our wives? And Are we ruined or have we won? Have those fighting for us won? And so the Greeks won the battle against the Persians. And they sent people around to deliver the good news. You're not going to be a slave. You are free. And that is exactly the story we have in Christ. You have been a slave under sin and under Satan for all these years, for all of your life, but you're not limited to stay there. There's good news because of what Jesus has done. It is, in fact, very good news. Advice requires us to act. Good news requires us just to receive it. So what else does he say in this word, this good news, this kingdom of God he is proclaiming? Jesus calls us, and he called them to repent and believe. 
We're going to talk more about repentance on Wednesday, but just in a, in a picture here, repentance is a turning from one direction to another. It's a turning away from the way of the curse, which is the way of self and self-sufficiency. So if you came and you thought, you know, i got my act together. I think my life is good enough. I basically can kind of do it, do it yourself, Christianity and faith. Then basically Jesus is calling you to turn away from that. I would say that there's other ways that we're self-sufficient. We come to conclude, you know what, I'm going to take control of my life and I'm going to make of it what I want. I will basically decide what makes me happy and what makes me feel significant and I will hold on to those things. And Jesus calls to us. He said, I am telling you that all the things that Satan has promised to you that will make your life worthwhile are lies. Satan's agenda is to lie, to steal, and to kill. He wants to destroy you and your life, and your family. And Jesus said, if you keep going after that, he'll give you one thing and then you'll take it and say, well, that doesn't satisfy. Maybe there's something else in his bag, in his treasure chest. And we keep digging around in that treasure chest. And Jesus says, I call you to repent from pursuing satisfaction in those things and turn and commit to finding satisfaction in me, the one who made you and knows you and loves you. And you'll never find true and deep satisfaction unless you find it in me. And so Jesus is calling for them to repent, and he's calling for us to repent. He's also calling for them and us to believe. Now, we're a pretty bright group around here generally. I think if we did a little uh, survey, we'd find you a pretty good educational level here. But boy, do we need to understand, this belief is not intellectual assent. This isn't just pile up the facts about Jesus and tick a box that says, yes, I think that's right, thank you, next, what's the next part of this quiz? No, what he's calling for is to say, while you've trusted in yourself, you need to now trust in, place your hope in who God is and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus looked at those guys right in the eye and he said, repent and believe. You've got to quit being self-sufficient. You've got to start trusting me to do all that I said I am going to do for you. And they were willing to take that challenge. This also requires sometimes that we quit trusting in our religious processes and our religious past and our religious heritage. It's great to have been raised in a Christian home. It's great to be a regular attender, perhaps a member at a church. But none of those things in and of themselves are belief in the work and person of Christ. And Jesus says to all of us, you know what you need? To repent and believe. Well, you know, if we uh, don't follow this path, if we uh, kind of stick with our own way, we'll be like the Jews of Jesus' day. See, the Jews weren't used to hearing the good news. They didn't have good news. What they had were a lot of rules. It started with the Ten Commandments, and in actual fact, there was a way that by faith they could make sacrifices showing they were trusting in God. But what they did is they twisted it into these religious practices where they made more and more rules. And people would put these rules on their back and say, okay, here's ten, but here's six hundred more. See if you can keep these rules. And two things happen if you're a rule keeper. One is you get an attitude of despair. Because you realize, I try and try and try and I can't do it. God can't be pleased. I'm not even pleased with myself. That's one possibility. The other possibility, if you're a rule keeper, is that you do think you do pretty good. Better than average, actually. Better than your neighbor, for sure. And better than your cousin and your nephew. And so pretty soon you think, you know what? My righteousness is pretty good. 
Really? I mean, compared to others, and compared is the key word. And you know what? That's as sick or sicker than the person who despairs. The keeping of rules will never get you what God wants to give you, which is abundant life. The only way to have abundant life is by believing in the person and work of Christ. And so Jesus, as he started his ministry, was calling people, put that religious stuff aside and believe in me. Repent of that and believe in me. Well, after he starts this teaching ministry, which was a new thing for him, in verse 16, we're going to find out sort of the second phase of his strategy. First strategy was to incarnate, to come and be with us. Second part of his strategy, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So, what do we learn from this? This is where we get the subject for our title, the calling of this motley crew. Jesus' strategy was not only to come and be with us, but right away to start gathering a group of people around him who would be the change agents to push back the darkness and to bring in the kingdom of God. I mean, actually, it seems a little bit risky to me. And the people he chose, whoa, they didn't seem to me like to be the real movers and shakers of his time. But let's follow this story. What did he first ask of them? Come and follow me. So Jesus looks these guys right in the eye. And this is where it gets personal. We can talk about the philosophy or the theory of what Jesus did and what it means to believe in him instead of believing in your righteousness. But at some point, Jesus wants to look you right in the eye and say, you know what? You come and follow me. It's about you and me. doesn't matter what your parents did. doesn't matter what your spouse does. The question is, what about you? Will you come and follow me? Will you repent and believe? And you demonstrate that by following me. And the good news in this, he wasn't calling them to a religious program or a package of deals. He was calling them to a relationship. Come and be with me, Jesus said. Come and go where I go and eat where I eat and sleep where I sleep and be with me. And it's the same today, church. God is calling us through Jesus Christ to this living relationship with him, which is riches indeed. The invitation of the gospel was and is an invitation to be with Jesus. Not just to learn about him, but to learn from him while we're with him. Not just to serve him, but to actually have him do his work through us as he's living in us. It's an amazingly different thing to have a relationship with Christ. It's exactly the thing that God has offered for us in the gospel. Well... These men that we're talking about, these fishermen, and actually you might think that God's a little prejudiced here because out of 12, he picks four fishermen. What about people with other vocations? Well, I don't know, but he liked fishermen, okay? And these guys had pretty good businesses. We see from the model that they had equipment, they had nets, they had boats. We see that they had family connections. It was uh, fishing with their father's business. They had partners in the business. So these were not guys that said, oh man, if I find a chance, I've got to change my vocation. These were not just the poor people of their society. They kind of had their act together. They were in the midst of doing normal life when all of a sudden Jesus came and said, drop your nets, leave your boats, leave your family, put your career aside, and come and follow me. 
It was an incredibly disruptive thing that Jesus did. And for some of us, leaving families is like, wait a minute. I'm not going there. I mean, God wants me to love my family, right? And I can actually please God by loving my family, which there are many ways that we serve out of our faith, most specifically and consistently in our marriages and with our kids and, and honoring our parents. Those are all legitimate things. But Jesus said, as a matter of priority and comparison, I'm telling you, you have to be able to open your hands and not hold on to your family. But you have to put me first even over your family. You've got to be willing to do that. And then some of us say, well, I, I'm okay about, you know, kind of releasing my family. In fact, some of us have moved so many times for careers and other things. We say, I've shown that my family's not my idol, but my career now, if somebody talks to me outside of this place, in fact, if someone talks to me in the cafe, who I am and what I am, the major definition of that is what I do. I am an accountant. I am a business person. I am an investor. I am a medical person. I'm a doctor. I do this kind of work. And in our culture, we get so wrapped up in our identity being in those things. And Jesus looked these guys in the eye and said, leave the boats, leave the nets, and come and follow me. And now, this is getting a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, does everybody have to be one of these radical Christians? Is that what this is all about? Isn't it just a call to receive the gift of forgiveness and the hope of life in heaven? Do we really have to be radical Christians? Isn't that part of the problem after all? Aren't we aware that there's a lot of uh, religious zealots, like Islamic fundamentalists, for instance, is something that we talk about in the news all the time. Aren't they the ones causing all the problem because they go way, way too far? And isn't it like too much of a problem to be radical in your faith as a Christian. Might you not make a foolish mess of what could have been a good life? Shouldn't you have held on to the good life, Thank God for the blessings of your job and your family, and just also enjoyed, as, uh, uh, boy, I forgot his name, the guy wrote about three pounds of God um, in uh, uh, Swindoll, sorry, Chuck Swindoll. Uh, and I think that's our tendency to do that. And so the question comes, wouldn't it be better to be moderate in your faith? Don't be too cold. Don't have just a little bit of religion that doesn't change you. But don't be too hot and zealous either. Because then that's just going to lead to problems. And you probably won't be very good and useful to God anyway. So find moderation somewhere. Isn't moderation the answer? Let me just read this verse from Luke 14, writing to this question. Jesus is again speaking to a big audience. And he's looking people in the eye and he's saying, come and believe in me. Repent of your ways and come and follow me. And then he says, if anyone comes to me... And does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now notice this passage doesn't say, if you want to be a missionary or if you want to be a pastor, then you need to do those things. But for the normal Christian, this isn't expected. Jesus said, if anyone, anyone wants to come to me. Now, he doesn't, um, he doesn't endorse or ask us to hate our families, actually. In fact, there's so many places where he tells us to be responsible and loving and faithful to take care of them. But what he is saying is, if you want to hold on to that as a core of your identity and the thing most important to you and the thing that you think will satisfy you, you're not going to have an effective time following me and being my disciple. And I know this is very scary. And I also know that God doesn't call for most of us to change our jobs, or most of us even to change our addresses. Certainly doesn't call for most of us to move away from our families. But to tell you the truth, he is asking us 
to join him with Peter and James and John and that whole group of 12 in radically changing the world. And in order to do that, he's saying, I'm encouraging you to let go of everything and hold on to me. And you might be really afraid. You might say, wait a minute. This is more than I signed up for this Sunday morning. I just wanted a little encouragement. I don't want somebody challenging me about changing everything. But I want to just tell you by testimony that what God's asking for is that you give up what Satan wants to keep whispering in your ear that he says will satisfy so that you can take hold of the things that God says will give you the deepest purpose and blessing in life. My wife um, and I, it's kind of just by the journey we've been on, have ended up living, I've lived in Chicago and New York in Nairobi, Kenya and Bristol, England, and Knoxville, Tennessee. And all of that journey was really just asking God, what do you want of us? How do we follow you? What does that look like in this time? I've had to say goodbye to my parents and move overseas. I've also said goodbye to my children, my adult children, when we went to Bristol, England. And I'm just here to tell you that while those things are real costs, As my wife and I look back, we realize how much God blessed us, how good he was to us, how much richer we are. I'm telling you, I never wanted to leave western Pennsylvania. I loved it here. I grew up here. I have aunts and uncles and cousins. My parents were here. But when God called us to go, we believed that he would be faithful in us and through us and to our families. And he has proved himself faithful. We are so much richer because of the journey we've been on. And I only tell you that because whatever God is asking you to do, He has something better for you than what it is you're holding on to. And again, He's probably not asking you to leave your family or to move to Nairobi, Kenya. But He is asking you not to say, God, I won't do anything except what I'm willing to do. He's asking you to say, will you follow me? And the answer to that needs to be, yes, Lord. Anywhere, anytime, anything. That's what it means to actually be a follower and a disciple of Christ. So, um, let me ask you this question. So we have this good news. We have this pattern of repenting, believing, and following. And isn't that really a message for non-Christians? I mean, aren't we supposed to preach the gospel to people that don't know? And in essence, what we tell them is the way they can have life in Christ, and then they receive the gift of forgiveness and new life in Christ? And the answer is absolutely yes. That word is for non-Christians. I have had the joy in this building of sharing this word with people and seeing them come from death to life in Christ because of the grace and mercy of God. It's a wonderful thing. I've seen it happen. I know there's so many stories from others where they've had that experience as well. But here's news for you. This word isn't just for people who are outside of faith so that they can enter into the faith. Sometimes I think we think, okay, I've got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. I'm forgiven. So like, what's on television tonight? Does anybody know? Uh, and we're moving on to as if that's all that we're supposed to do. But I'm telling you, this pattern of living the gospel, knowing the gospel, is supposed to be something we as believers do every day. We need to repent. We need to believe. We need to follow in obedience after Christ. And um, because Satan continually is whispering these lies in our ears, we have to sort of have that stuff flushed out. And because the world makes it hard, it's like all these things choke out our sense of confidence in God and His goodness and His provision. We need to encourage each other to believe and to keep on believing and to hold on to those things which are most valuable and rich in Christ. It's work. Now I've said a dangerous word. Isn't the gospel supposed to be grace-based? What are you saying, Wade, that as a Christian I have to keep working for my salvation? I am not saying that. 
I'm saying that as a Christian, we have to keep every day retelling ourselves the gospel. And remember, the gospel isn't advice about how to live. The gospel is the news of what Christ has done for us. And that that same Christ who lives in us will continue to do. That's exactly what we need to do as a pattern. It is totally based on grace. His work, His goodness, His blessing. And don't forget that Jesus said, I want you to have life and have it more abundantly. And this is the path to that life. It's surrendering totally to me and allowing my spirit total freedom to lead you as you serve the kingdom together. Well, so we're not earning our salvation. Uh, We are receiving and wanting to live out our salvation. This is what it looks like to live out your identity in Christ. A regular pattern of repenting and believing and following. Let's get back to this Motley Crue picture. Jesus planned to use fishermen and tax collectors and an assorted group of people that were not necessarily the biggest movers and shakers to turn the world upside down. And you know what? He did. He totally, radically changed the world. He came to live among us, to die for us, and to conquer sin and death and hell, to offer us a gift of life. But his plan for restoring his creation included us. And I mean up to current date, Christ Church at Grove Farm. Now you might take a look around this room and say, well, wait a minute, he could use a couple radical fishermen and things, but what can he do with us? I mean, we're, and you name your limitation, we're what? Not as educated or as theologically prepared as we need to be, or we're older or we're younger and inexperienced, or you can name all the reasons you think God can't use us. Hey, look, these guys were just fishermen. They were professional fishermen, but he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You've been catching these fish, which if you eat them, it's one thing, but if you lay them around very long, they stink. And whatever happens, it's dead and gone. But now, he said, I'm going to take hold of your life, and you're going to start doing things that are going to last forever. And that's exactly what God wants to do with Christ Church. It isn't just a matter of us finding a way to, so to speak, feed ourselves. It's a matter of us engaging in uh, being under our general, Jesus Christ, as he pushes his kingdom and his light and his goodness and his plan for redemption out in this greater Pittsburgh area. And tag your it. You're part of the motley crew. Every one of you here, it's not just up for us pastors to do. Every one of you that has the Spirit of God living in you, you have a sphere of influence. You have people that you know, family members, neighbors, co-workers, that I don't know. I don't have a conversation with them. I don't have influence with them. God has placed you in that picture. And the question is, will you live faithfully, repenting and believing and following so that you also can be like these guys? Fishers of men. I'm telling you, the adventure's on. I'm convinced that God wants to do some new and fresh things through this church. And I want to see his grace and mercy poured out on us so that we can be that channel of blessing to this community. This good news that Jesus was bearing on a regular basis, I want us to be so convinced of the truth of it, so convinced of the goodness of it, that it just flows out of us to all of our contacts. We are, in fact, um, chosen for that work. And uh, so, let me say that uh, in closing, I'm going to leave this uh, picture in your mind. Some of you may have seen this movie, and it's, um, it's really got some adult themes. The movie is City Slickers, and it's about some men that were really in the middle of midlife crisis. Uh, that is, they, uh, one of them had a broken marriage and was trying to sort that out. 
Another one was, uh, had been raised by a, a very sinful father, and he had lived a wild life himself, and he was thinking about getting married, but he was so afraid that he would totally make a wreck of it. So he wasn't sure what to do about that. And the third one was just disillusioned with life. He had a good marriage, he had a job that was supposed to be fulfilling, but in the middle of his life he's saying, is this all there is? Really? Is this like it? And so these three guys get together and they decide they're going to go out west and they're going to herd cattle for two weeks. They hadn't even rode a horse before that. If you've seen the movie, it's, it's telling how that works. So they go out there and they're trying to get their act together and they meet the trail boss who's a guy named Curly. Curly is this wizened old 60-some-year-old guy that looks like the Marlboro Man, you know that commercial? And he's just tough, and they can't, they respect him, they fear him, they watch him, and they're just in awe of Curly. And so they're on this cattle drive, and they're having all their silly experiences with that, and at one really uh, tough moment, uh, one of the stars in the movie is away with Curly, and they have this big traumatic experience of delivering a calf, and it's so amazing, and then he says, Curly, you know, I, I just want you to tell me, how is it that you're so settled? How is it that you find the meaning of life? How is it that you've got yourself sorted? And Curly said, Ah, oh, you city slickers are all alike. You get your lives all tied up in knots and you get yourselves in a big mess and then you come out here for two weeks and think you can sort it all out and then you send yourself back to the city. He said, You don't get it, do you? And he said, Curly, tell me, what is it? I don't get it. That's why I'm here. And you know what Curly says? I'll tell you what it is. It's one thing. It's just one thing. That's what it is. And at that point, I got really interested in the movie. I wondered, what's he going to say? What is the answer? What's the one thing? What is it? And so, of course, our uh, star says, Curly, what is it? He says, this is where it goes calamitously bad. Curly says, I'll tell you. The one thing is, you've got to figure it out yourself. Whatever it is for you, you've got to figure out. And so the rest of the movie, they all make much of the fact, oh, I found out the one thing. The one thing is like, uh, find the one thing. My word, would God help us to say, we know what the one thing is. Church, we know that Jesus Christ is the one thing. He lived and he died and he rose again. He's the only offer of life for anybody in any way. He is the one thing. We have that gospel. And he's encouraging us to embrace it fully and passionately and have done with lesser things. And then he's saying, and I want you to be a fisher of men. I want you to go and tell other people about who I am and what I've done. That's my plan. My plan isn't to stay and to write messages in the clouds. My plan is not to stay after I rose from the dead and go back and do miracle after miracle after miracle. My plan is to come into your heart and in your life and in your family and so change you by the power of my spirit living in you that you will change the world. You think, is that really a good plan, God? It's been working pretty well, to be honest. There's about 2 billion people living in 2013 that name the name of Christ. But there's a lot of people in Pittsburgh that aren't there yet. May we be found faithful as followers so that we can share the one thing. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful for the gospel, the good news that we don't have to do it ourselves. that uh, while we were dead in our sins, you came and lived a perfect life so we could have that righteousness and died a sacrificial death to pay for our sins. And Father, I pray today for each one of us, wherever we are in our journey, that we would repent and believe and follow. And Lord, I am asking that you would take us as a church and help us to continue being fishers of men. May we be a place where people come to know the glorious life that is available in Christ Jesus. We ask that in his name. Amen.